time. Uh, all kinds of things go through our minds, don't they? But um, anyway, I thought of a few. Anyone who thinks Christmas doesn't last all year certainly does not have a charge account. <laughs> right? The average couple splits the Christmas chores. She signs the cards, he signs the checks. Unfortunately, what many people want for Christmas is the day after. That's too bad, isn't it? But that's true. One more thing. When you pay $35 for a Christmas tree, you have been trimmed more than the tree has. <clears throat> the message today is no room on the inside. Look a little play on words there. In, I-N-N, inside. Luke 2, 1 to 20. A cripple boy with polio wanted to take part in the Christmas program, but the major roles were already taken, and so he did not have a chance. But the major, he, but he says he was so disappointed, so later he was given the part of the innkeeper in the Christmas play. So he was heartbroken because he was the only person in the play that had to reject Jesus, as the innkeeper did. He was deeply troubled about this. In the night of the play, the church was, was packed with people. The play started with Joseph knocking on the door. The innkeeper's moment had arrived. He could not restrain himself any longer. He threw open the door and shouted, Come in, I've been expecting you. The audience roared and applauded loudly and later saying it was the best program they had ever had. Room for Jesus inside. Let's look at Luke chapter 2 and learn something about no room on the inside, okay? First there was a decree, that's given in verses 1 to 5, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place when Quirinius was govern, governing Syria. So all went to be registered, every one to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David." to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Verse 1 has a very interesting phrase in it. Did you see it? It says, it came to pass in those days. Three, in those days. Pretty important. You see, God was working from eternity past to make this moment happen. So, religiously, God had worked in all of the situations of of the, the, the known world. And so after, religiously, he had prepared the word because after the captivity, you see, the, the scrolls of the Old Testament were then more available and synagogues were open all around the places. And it was really, it was really a marvelous thing how he prepared the world religiously by having his word available to people and synagogues in which it could be read and studied. Then he prepared the word, the world culturally in a very 
marvelous way because Alexander the Great made great, great uh, Greek the language, Greek the universal language, and he united Asia and Europe and Africa, and what a, what a preparation that was. And there was a third way that he prepared the world. He did it politically, and boy, this, this is something. He used this very man that we're talking about right now in verse 1. Rome established what they called the Roman peace. It was kind of a forced peace. It was actually kind of a bludgeoned peace, if you will. But it was peace, and it was quite, uh, quite remarkable. And the, the stories about it are endless. Uh, the laws protected citizens of the day, and the Roman roads were built, which exist even to this day that people can traverse. They're quite remarkable. So that's a little bit how, how, he, how he prepared the world. But let's talk about now this man whose name is in, in verse 1. Uh, you, you heard it. His name is Caesar Augustus. Uh, he was born with the name uh, Octavian. I probably said it wrongly, but that's okay. I have, a, I have a rule for pronunciation of biblical names. Any way you pronounce it is correct. <laughs> he was born with the name Octavian. Uh, it was named after his father. Uh, his grandmother was the sister of Julius, Julius Caesar, and being, and being a talented young man, Octavian came to the attention of his great uncle, and so Julius Caesar came to adopt Octavian as his son. And he was made his official heir in 45 B.C. Now, in 27 B.C., he arranged for the Roman Senate to give him the title Augustus, and boy, this is interesting. It mean, the word Augustus means exalted and sacred, also means exalted and sacred. So now Rome wasn't a republic governed by laws. No, it was an empire governed by an emperor. And the first emperor of, Roman, of Rome was this same Julius Caesar, or Caesar Augustus, excuse me. He was a military statesman. He was a genius. There was forced peace everywhere. It reigned all over the empire. The Temple of Janus, where we get our name January, was closed because that meant there was peace. If it was open, that means there was war. So it was closed. So that's a little bit about the man. You could say a lot more books have been written about it, but let's talk about the mania of this man, the mania boy. You see, like I told you, he chose, he actually helped in choosing his name. Uh, they, they said, would you like to be called dictator? No, 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 they, that's, that's too temporary. That's not good enough. Uh, what about king? No, that's, that's not good enough either. Well, they said, what about Augustus? Oh, that's good because that implies deity. And that's what he liked. He wanted to be God. Of, of, he wanted to be ruling everything. So he chose the name Augustus, Augustus. But you see, this man needed a lot of money. He needed a lot of money and though to satisfy his own personal lifestyle and that of his huge army, which he supported, he put into motion the final countdown, the final countdown of all prophecies of the Old Testament concerning Christ's coming, which is in this chapter we read today. God used Caesar Augustus as a puppet, just a puppet. 
in his hand to decree what we read in verses 1 through 5, which I just read to you. Yeah, this guy thought he was something, but God said, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you, uh, Caesar. Um, he made a decree that everybody had to be enlisted or registered wherever they were born. So, verse 2 tells us that it took place when Quirinius was governing in Syria, and that verse has been a lot of problem for a lot of people, a lot of Bible students through all the years, but they need not worry about it because like, like, it, like we studied um, many years, the, the accuracy of, the, of Luke's gospel was, was called into question because of this reference in, uh, that I just read about Quirinius. But later, archaeological discoveries tend to confirm the second, the, 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 the record, I should say, because he ruled two, two times, so there is no problem. He ruled once, then again, when this was taking place. It says, each went to his own city, Mary and Joseph, because you see they were of the lineage of David, and so this was their tribal origin. They had to go back to Bethlehem. We used to live in Brazil. Our son Raleigh's here. He was born in Sao Paulo, Brazil. If we lived in northern Brazil in the city of Natal where we lived for a number of years, and if he was of voting age, he would have to make the long trip down to Sao Paulo to register because that's the way it was happened in, in, in the days of, uh, of uh, Caesar Augustus. Well, interesting. This uh, is, a, is a fascinating story. Um, <clears throat> Julius, uh, I keep calling him Julius, I don't know why, but Caesar Augustus, he had no idea what he was doing when he made that decree for people to go and register so that he could get some taxation from that registration process. But there's a verse in Proverbs 21, which is so beautiful. I love it. I use it all the time. Listen to this verse. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he, he turns it wherever he wishes. So God was controlling this man, Caesar Augustus. Little did he know anything about the prophet Micah that wrote these beautiful words. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. That would be Jesus. And he commanded that they all go back to be taxed in their places, to be registered, that is. And that would take Mary and Joseph right to Bethlehem so Jesus could be born there. And Micah 5.2 would become a fulfilled prophecy. So we saw the decree in these verses, and now let's look at the dilemma which faced this couple, verses 6 and 7. The trip was about, uh, Bible scholars vary on the, the difference, but it was about 100 miles, we could say that. It was about 100 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And that was kind of hard for this couple. Uh, Bible teachers think that Mary may have been only about 13 years old, and she was pregnant with Jesus. And so it was a hard trip. So the story is given in these two verses. So it was that while, and this is amazing, the entire birth of Jesus is given in two verses, in one verse really, really, 
and of all the Bible, this is where it is found, right here. And it was so that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. That was the dilemma. There was no place where he could be born. What a dilemma. If they'd had electricity in those days, the no vacancy signs would have been lit up all over Bethlehem because there was no place they could even find to spend the night. The inns were full. The inns weren't anything to brag about either. They were all full. They were just a little better, but none were really available. A lodging house or a con, K-H-A-N, they were poor enough at best, but there was not even room in this public place either because of the crowds for this census and this registration. But there was room, you know where it was? It was back of all of those inns and back of all those little places where they could have maybe stayed if there'd been not so many people. Back of those, there were places where animals were kept and fed for the night. Quite possibly, it was a rock cave. Dr. Thompson says this, I have seen many such um, consisting of one or more rooms in front of and including a cavern where the cattle were kept. This is where Jesus was born because there was no room for them in the inn. All they found was a manger. A manger was a, was a feeding trough for animals. That's what it was. <clears throat> this is the title of today's message, No Room on the Inside. And uh, it concerns me greatly. Where is Christ in your life? Where is Christ in your life? If you talk to people about going to heaven and you ask them that, they'll say, yeah, hope to. Oh, really? Listen to a verse in Colossians 1.27. To them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, listen to this, Christ is in you the hope of glory. So there's the word hope. Oh, some people like to hope. They hope to go to heaven. But here's the verse that tells you more about it. Christ in you is the only hope that you ever have to get to heaven. Christ in you the hope of glory. It's a pretty important verse. There's another one too in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And there is another good one in John 1:12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. So I think people can come to church forever. They can hear the message of salvation forever. But if they've never personally invited Jesus to come inside, there's no hope for glory. That's why the message of Christmas is so very special. It tells us all how we can get to heaven if we'll just do it God's way. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, in John 1, 12. Here's the test, dear people. Listen to this. The Apostle John gave it so well. <clears throat> and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. 
He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's how serious it is. If you don't have Jesus inside, you're never going to heaven. Oh, how I wish that the world could know this story. Oh, how I wish the world could know this story. Paul said, for this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. And I hope that you have that same assurance that you have invited Jesus inside your life, invited him to come in to be your Savior. Because that's what it says, as many as received him. Well, how do you receive someone? You open the door of your heart and have him come in. Not just leave him on the outside like a lot of people do and go on with life. No, he's got to be on the inside. Well, there's a third thing in our outline. There was the decree and there was the dilemma. Now there is the delight. Look at verses 8 to 20. 8 to 20. Beautiful verses. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around, and they were, so, they were greatly afraid. Would you have been? Of course you would. So would I. I've been petrified. God chose to announce the birth of Jesus to a group of lowly shepherds. Shepherds, they didn't smell very good, and they took care of sheep who smelled even worse. He chose to announce the message of Jesus' birth to these shepherds out in the countryside. Really quite remarkable. So there are, there are some lessons from the shepherds in this story which I want us to learn today. Look at verse 10. Then the angel said to them, these, as he'd already appeared to, the, to the, uh, the shepherds and they were scared to death. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. There's one of the greatest messages in the Bible. Think of it. The angels gave to the shepherds that night this simple message. Don't be afraid. Of course, they were. That's why I said don't be afraid. But I'm bringing you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. That's why we send missionaries all around the world, because this is a message to all people. A-L-L, capitalized. <coughs> Shepherds received this first message of Christmas. An angel of the Lord brought the message, only Jesus can give you joy, because that's the first point. The angel announced great joy. And a lot of people talk about joy, they read about joy, they listen to it on the radio and the songs, but a lot of people do not have it because there's only one way you can have joy. Only Jesus can give you joy that makes a difference in your life. You can have joy that's artificial. You can have joy that's manufactured artificially in your life by all kinds of ways. But there's only one genuine joy that is deep within your soul and your heart because Jesus is the one that brings it when you receive him as your personal Savior. Jesus is the joy of living. Yes, um, joy is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into your life when you receive Jesus as Savior, so then the fruit of the Spirit, the first one is love, joy, and peace. Wonderful. Dr. John McNeil made a, 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 an amazing statement about this word joy. Listen to what he said about joy. 
now since I have been saved, I am happier when I am unhappy than when I was happy before I was saved. That's what Jesus will do in your life, my friend. He'll take, he'll take a glummy old sad person and give you joy that doesn't depend on the outside circumstances that are going on that day. It doesn't depend on circumstances. It depends on where Jesus is. Oh, he's in my heart. Thank you, Jesus. I have your joy. Joy is the message of Christmas. Yep, it sure is. That's the first, that's the first lesson the shepherds teach us, the one about great joy. Look at the next one. Um, oh, I forgot to tell you about the joy. You know, um, Nehemiah made a wonderful statement about joy. He said in, in chapter 8 and verse 10 of his book, he said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. If you feel kind of weak today, I'll just tell you, just get a hold of Jesus and he'll give you strength because the joy of the Lord is your strength. So get Jesus and then you'll have joy and then you'll be strong. Praise the Lord. Doesn't, be, doesn't matter how weak you are, you're going to be strong. The second lesson the, the shepherds teach me, the, the, the angel announced peace. Look at that, verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you have lo loved to have heard that choir? Can't even imagine what it was like. Because it says uh, um, it was a multitude of the heavenly host. The, a better reading of this verse, because, you know, they use it in Christmas cards all the time, you know, a glory to God in the highest, on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. This goodwill toward men, boy, we run it into the ground, I'll tell you that, folks. But here, here's, here's what it is. A better reading of that verse would be this, to, would be to men in whom he, that is the Lord, is well pleased. That's the one he gives, that's the one he gives the peace to. The men in whom God is well pleased are those who reap who repent of their sins and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. When you have Jesus, you have peace. Listen to this, Ephesians 2.14, for he himself, talking about Jesus, he himself is our peace. He's our peace. Philippians 4.7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So someone comes to a Christian and says, can you explain the peace you have in your heart and you have to honestly say, I can't, because the scriptures say it's peace that passes understanding. But I'll tell you, folks, if you have it, you know it. If you have his peace, you know it. You may not be able to explain it. That's okay, but you have it. Praise the Lord for that. Well, there's another lesson we learned from the shepherds through this passage. It comes in verses 15 and 16. It was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. Isn't that amazing? So here are these shepherds out there taking care of the sheep. They all were employed by someone else, I think. And here they, they says, let us, let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing. They left their sheep out there in the field. Didn't give a rip about him and went to Bethlehem to seek Jesus. It's amazing. It's amazing. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. 
but that's because they were seek the third point is they were seeking him and dear people i hope that you are seeking him today yeah it's christmas time sure and you say oh yeah i'm a believer just keep on seeking jesus just keep on wanting to be where he is and if he is in your life then of course he's with you everywhere you go but still keep putting him first in your life and everything that you do it's wonderful there's a fourth lesson they learned from uh, they learned from this angelic uh, encounter and that's telling others about Jesus look at verse 17 now when they had seen him look what they did they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child isn't that something you see here's the here's the <clears throat> the facts about it dear people if Jesus means anything to you at all if he is your Savior you're going to tell someone else about him. You've got to tell someone else about him. Are you telling others about Jesus? I was at the gas station a couple of days ago, ready to fill the, the, the tank up, and, and, a, and a man came to me, a nice man, with a, with a gas can. He said, could you, could you fill this gas cap up? I said, I've got to get to Everson. I says, you bet I can fill it up. Put it down. So I put my credit card in and pumped, and, and pumped it full of gas. But while I did it, I had his attention. <laughs> I said, mister, did you know that Jesus loves you? This is Christmas time. God wants to save you. You're a sinner. You need Jesus. And only he will save your soul. He said, oh, I have a picture of Jesus on my mantle. And he says, my dad and I, we talk to him every night. And he just kept on. I says, no, God doesn't want you to talk to a picture. He wants you to talk to him. I says, just tell him in your heart that you're a sinner and you know that Jesus died for you and will forgive your sins. You tell him that and he will, you will go back to Everson, a new man, forgiven. And when you die, you're on the way to heaven. It was, worth, it was worth a can of gas. It always, it always is worth a can of gas. And the other day at Virginia Mason, Roy and I were there, and, and, dear, and dear Rachel that, uh, that re received us in, you know, I just told her about Margie's passing. She said, oh, I've got to give you a hug. <laughs> they always say that, and they do. And she came and gave me a hug, but while she was hugging me, I preached Jesus to her. And she said, you know, I am a believer. I said, well, praise the Lord. And she said, my mother needs prayer. So her name was Shelley. So Raleigh, bless his heart, came over into the elevator area of this 15th floor on the Swedish Cancer Institute. And we had a prayer meeting for Shelley, Rachel's mother. Listen, folks, just tell people about Jesus. You may, you may think they're not ready to hear, but they are ready to hear. They're, they want to hear what you say. They're ready to hear about Jesus. Okay. <clears throat> the last thing they learned was something about praise. Verse, verse 20. Then the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. And uh, what, a, what, a, what a hallelujah meeting they had and praise for what they had seen on that beautiful night. And... Um, I just uh, left room to write a few things in your notes, those who are doing so. 
make room for Jesus in these five areas of your life, would you really seriously consider it? The number one where I want you to make room for Jesus in your life is in your heart. Number one, in your heart. That's where he wants to be. He wants to come into your heart, your life, and make you a new creature in himself. Not only in your heart, but what about your home? Is Christ preeminent in your home? Is he honored in your home? Is everything you do in your home give glory and, and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what Christmas is all about. Please make room for him in your heart, in your home. And the third thing, with your time, with your time. In a lifetime, the average American will spend six months sitting at stoplights, eight months opening junk mail, one year looking for misplaced objects, two years unsuccessfully returning phone calls, four years doing housework, five years waiting in line, and six years eating. And how much of it, how much of it was thinking about Jesus? Give time for Jesus. Time is the coin. Time is, time is the coin of your life. It is the only coin you have, and only you can determine how it will be spent. Be careful lest you let other people spend it for you. Someone said, each minute is an unretrievable gift, an unredeemable slice of eternity. Now is all the time we have, right now. We may, may never make it to the out exit door. You don't know, nor do I. That's why I want you to know Jesus before you get there. Another place for, to make room for Jesus in your business. Any of you ever heard of dear old R.G. Letourneau, the man that made these huge earth-moving machines? You know what he said? He wrote a book one time. I read it. God runs my business. Boy, I love that. Are you letting God run your business? Are you letting God run your life? Well, that's what he wants. There's one more. In your pleasure, what are your priorities, class? What are, what are your priorities? What, what are, are, you, are you giving him your pleasures that you seek? Let him control that in your life. A frightened woman, woman on the Titanic found her place in the lifeboat that was about to be dropped into the raging North Atlantic. She thought suddenly of something she needed in light of death that was break, breathing down her neck. She asked for permission to go to her stateroom. She was granted that just a moment or so, or they, she said, or you would have to leave without, without having this advantage of the lifeboat. She ran across a deck that was already slanted and a dangerous angle. She ran through the gambling room that had money pushed aside in one quarter, ankle deep already on the floor. She came to her stateroom and pushed aside her jewelry and reached above her bed and got three small oranges and fought her way back to the lifeboat and got in. Death had boarded the Titanic. One blast of its awful breath had transformed all values instantaneously. Priceless things had become worthless. Worthless things had become priceless. And in that moment, she preferred three small oranges to a crate of diamonds. Where does Jesus fit in your life, dear people? Let's pray.
How many today could honestly say, I don't know Jesus. He's not in my life like I want him to be. And today you would just say, Pastor, I want, I want Jesus in my life. 